In early 2011, as protests swept across the Middle East and North Africa, many Syrians were waiting to see if a revolution would also rise up in their country. Diana Hayata was one of them. She was living in Syria's most populated city, Aleppo, the economic hub in the north of the country. Before mentioning the revolution, one important thing happened with me that got me to naturally become an activist, which is because of my divorce situation and because the man has way more rights than women in Syria and the constitution. What broke me literally inside is that he decided to take away my children from me. I am divorced with nothing with me, even a personality. And that's very crucial and essential in order for you to lead a path. You need to have a voice. You need to have analytical thinking. You need to have courage, power, etc. I just felt that I'm not strong. Until I had someone that came to me and said, Diana, now you are weak. Empower yourself and then bring back your children. So that was my train track. Then the revolution happened. And naturally, I will become an activist because there is no fairness in the law between women and men in Syria. When I heard about the revolution and when I heard people protesting in the streets, that was my first go-to. Shouting in one voice for your legal rights with people on the ground that's the first step in my personal journey to obtain a character, to have a voice to speak with. This is the Syria Trial Season 2, The Disappearing General. I'm your host Fritz Streif and this is Episode 3, Inside Branch 335. Please be aware that this episode contains descriptions of violence and torture. Please take care while listening. Kinan Khadej was at the other end of the country to Diana, in Sueda, the hometown of Brigadier General Khaled al-Halabi. At the beginning of the revolution, the whole ideology of the revolution was peaceful protest. We were going to do what the Tunisian people did, what the Egyptians did. We were going to try to overthrow this regime peacefully, make a safe transition into democracy, and build a safer and less corrupt government. It's an amazing feeling. It's... Sorry, I'm getting emotional, but it's really an amazing feeling to just feel liberated, to feel everyone speaking one voice, demanding one thing, which is dignity and justice for all. It's really amazing. And it's also scary at the same time. Revolutionary sentiment was also building in Raqqa, the city in the northeast of Syria where Halabi had been head of state security since 2009. Those eager to join the revolution began to coordinate, like school teacher Thayer Dandush. The first protest took place on March the 25th, 2011, near Al Ferdos Mosque. I was working in a bridal shop, which was located across the street from the mosque. 
I was standing in front of the shop's door when all of these young people came out of the mosque. One brave person, may he rest in peace, Abuya Muhammad Shalash, was standing outside the mosque's door and started shouting out, protesting. When he shouted, I cannot describe the feeling that came over me. I was ecstatic, trembling, shivering. It was an amazing and incredible feeling, to be honest. During the first protest, I just walked with the people who were shouting. I thought I would shout, but I couldn't. I was frozen. But the important thing was that I started moving. Activist Abdallah also remembers the first demonstration in Raqqa. How did that feel? What was the feeling like, the atmosphere in the city? You know... I see you smiling. Yeah, uh, uh, because you can't believe on that time that people have this power to go. So a lot of people came? No, this is what makes me laughing. It's like uh, 20, 25. And then we start to coordinate a lot and encourage the people a lot. Write some posters about our rights. We have to change. We have to rethink about our future. If not you, for your children, stuff like this. After that, when you see the demonstration, they become bigger and bigger. 100, 200. And after that, I choose the place of the demonstration. We will go from this place at that time. Do you remember a specific protest for some reason? Yes. I told my friends, we have to go to do demonstration very close to those branches. Alhamdulillah. This is the first time I go close to the branches, the intelligence branches. And they told me it's like dangerous, but we have to do it. It's like to, to tell the people and do demonstration really close to them and we don't scare. So the people becomes like more open to the revolution and uh, support the revolution. What was that like? I, I have one brother. At the time he couldn't run a lot. I'm a good runner. I run good. So I invited 20 or 25 person. All of them is good built for running because we expect that the intelligence they come directly and trying to to arrest us and also i invite omar my friend and he told me abdullah just get out from the jail i told him okay it's like just five minutes and we'll run away so the demonstration when we start my friend start to film at just 13 seconds 13 and the police they came and arrested my brother and my friend, who told me I just get out from the jail. At just 13 seconds. At that time, the first time, they shot. In the air? No, actually, they shot because I ran, and there was a general. He said, he told his officers and soldiers, bring me that guy. So I ran, and they follow me uh, to empty place, and start shooting. First time they, they, they shoot directly. They hit you? No, they don't catch me. With the beginning, the regime faced us with extreme force. Would send his militias, would send the army, he would uh, start using live ammunition against normal protesters. And a lot of massacres happened. And I remember that we used to say, like, the main reason why the revolution reached every city in Syria because the regime itself. The brutality of the regime has caused that every single person in Syria didn't want to do anything to do with it. 
and nobody wanted to stay silent against that brutality. If I'm remembering correctly, in, by the year 2012, the protests have reached every city in Syria. He reacted violently. At the beginning, it was rubber bullets and then tear gas and the arresting, of course, and arresting violently, like with the electric taser. The reach and power of the Syrian intelligence services didn't diminish as the revolution took hold of the entire country. If anything, the powers were increased as the Assad regime attempted to gain a handle over the protests. Lab technician and activist Muhammad. The presence of intelligence services became more noticeable in the streets, particularly at night, especially since protest announcements were being shared on Facebook. If there was a scheduled protest at a specific time, the entire street would be filled with security personnel, whether it was the police, state security, political security or military security. All the demonstrators were taking precautions to avoid being caught by the intelligence services. Muhammad had even thought that he had an extra layer of protection. In early 2011, as protests were gaining ground in Raqqa, he had in fact had a personal meeting with Al-Halabi at State Security Branch 335. On Facebook pages linked to the regime, they started publishing the names of the infiltrators, as they used to call us in Raqqa. My name was one of them. It said that I, Muhammad, an employee at the blood bank, was inciting against the regime and calling for protests. Muhammad's uncle was a member of the Ba'ath Party, the only party allowed in Syria. He was seen as someone loyal to the party and to the regime. He asked to meet with Muhammad. He came and picked me up in his car. He said he was taking me to see Khaled al-Halabi, his friend. I asked who Khaled al-Halabi was, and he told me that he is the director of the state security in the region. We entered his office, and he welcomed us warmly, saying, Welcome, 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 Abu Kinan. That's my uncle's name. He said, This is my nephew, Muhammad. I mentioned him to you before. They engaged in some casual conversation, talking about various topics and some mutual friends. Halabi asked, what would you like to drink? We said that you would like to have coffee. Halabi then asked if I had any issues with anyone. I told him, no, by God, I don't have any problems with anyone. He probed further, asking if I had participated in any protests. I replied, no, surely, I wouldn't come to a state security branch and admit to joining a protest, especially when I am here with my uncle, who is your friend. He expressed disbelief, saying that it was unlikely that my name would have been mentioned unless someone had filed a report or made accusations against me. He insisted that something must be wrong. He wanted to know what my intentions were. Did I have revolutionary aspirations? I reassured them I didn't want to do anything like that. Our editor and researcher Mace interviewed Mohammed. Producer Sasha is voicing her words here. How did you feel about him when you met him at that time? What were your impressions of his personality? I absolutely disliked his personality. Can you explain why? I mean, you know when you sense that someone doesn't like you? He was very arrogant in his speech, saying things like, we have nothing on you in our branch, there is nothing against you. 
His appearance conveyed a sense of seriousness. He had a slight frown. He was average height, just like the majority of the Syrian people. But as a person, he commanded respect. Before you even spoke to him, you could sense his authority as a security officer. Mohammed left Branch 335 that day, knowing he had to act cautiously, but thinking he enjoyed some level of protection from the security services. If Khalid al-Halabi is a friend of my uncle's, that's a good connection to have. Friendship with someone in the security field can be beneficial. He assured me that everything is fine and I have nothing to worry about. But even if the head of the security branch himself said this to me, it doesn't mean I'm truly safe. After a month, I was arrested. And by who? The state security. Mohammed had finished his shift at the blood bank around 3 o'clock in the afternoon. He was standing outside when a jeep pulled up beside him. There were four men inside. They asked for my identification, so I showed it to them. Then the two men in the back grabbed me and shoved me in the boot of the car. I had no idea who they were or where they were taking me. The car stopped. Then they instructed me to walk with my hands tied. My watch, mobile phone, wallet and personal documents were confiscated. They blindfolded me. They led me to a room where I could only partially see through the corners of my eyes. Do you want to plot against Bashar al-Assad, Muhammad? They shouted. I stayed silent. They made baseless accusations about me and my family using vulgar language and insulting remarks. Muhammad acting alone wants to overthrow the regime? How weak do you think the regime is? I told them, I want nothing, sir. I was just doing my job. You came and arrested me. You claim that I want to overthrow the regime. I asked, where did you hear that? Where have I ever expressed such intentions? Someone must have fed you false information. They started hitting me, slapping and kicking me. They forced me to lie on my stomach and tightly tied my legs with a belt. My hands were bound behind my back. They continued to hit me repeatedly on my back, buttocks, thighs and calves. Will you confess? They demanded. They kept on increasing the violence. I told them, enough, just write down whatever you want. After being transferred to the criminal security branch, Mohammed was released after around a month. But he was arrested again a month or so later. He was detained and tortured for eight days at branch 335. Abdullah al-Khalaf was another protester arrested in 2011 and taken to state security branch 335. I participated in the second or third protest in Raqqa on the 22nd of April 2011. It was named the Great Friday. The police were present and I was arrested alongside my brother. They took us to the state security branch. Each of us was taken out alone to the branch chief. I was blindfolded. I could not see a thing. I knew this person was the head of the branch. They called him Abu Saleh, but his name was Khalid al-Halabi. I do not remember very much about that moment, 
but he asked me questions about why I had joined the protest. It became physically violent. They threw me on the ground, raised my legs, and shouted insults at me, my family, our cause. He was the one throwing out insults. I'm not sure if he was the one doing the beating since I was blindfolded. School teacher Thayer suffered horrific treatment at Branch 335. There were two occasions when I was at the state security branch, and they put me on the flying carpet. Remember the flying carpet, or Bisat Arih, is a wooden board that detainees would be strapped to. The board is then folded in the middle, causing awful pain to the person on it. On one occasion, when they started electrocuting me, I do not know for sure, but I think I was in the room of the branch manager. I was blindfolded and could not see anything at all. I could only hear voices. It seems from the accounts of those who were detained and tortured in 335 that significant and serious abuses occurred within Halabi's branch under his watch. Whether Halabi himself was implicated in the actual torture is more difficult to know. Security personnel don't act independently. They require the approval of their superiors. There is no active security element without the commander's consent or authorization. When they arrested me the first time, it was impossible for Khaled al-Halabi not to know about it. During my second arrest, it took my family about a month and a half to find out where I was. How come Halabi didn't communicate with my uncle where I was? So where exactly does his criminal responsibility lie? Sija director Nerma Jelacic explains how the regime responded to the growing protests and Halabi's role in all of this. So when first the regime tried to quash the protests with the use of some force and just using the existing apparatus, they were dissatisfied with the communication or lack of communication between military and different security intelligence departments. So it was decided to set up the CCMC, the Central Crisis Management Cell, which would report directly to the president. And then he would have to approve the recommendations of the CCMC down to the governorates. And then as the protests continued spreading, Damascus continued trying to strengthen the structures that they were putting in place to quash it. These structures included the creation of security committees. So the security committees were ordered to be established in each of the governorates somewhere around autumn 2011. The security committees would have heads of the different security intelligence departments, military representative, a Ba'ath Party representative, and they would be in charge of coordinating the response within the governorate and writing daily reports up to the CCMC or to the head of the branch. It depends on what type of the report it is. So they would all have to be present either they or their deputies. But in terms of the individual criminal responsibility of this individual, of Halabi, it would have to be within the time frame when he was in charge of the General Intelligence Department and within the areas of work that he would influence, right? So you wouldn't be able to hold him responsible for what the military did or, or the security manning the checkpoints did. But what happens to the person when they are picked up at the checkpoint or in a house raid by the military and taken to the GID? GID, meaning General Intelligence Directorate or Department, which was the intelligence service Halabi was head of. Then he is responsible. 
because he's part of that infrastructure. Lawyer Steve Costas. So there would be orders from Damascus, but each of the governorates or the, each of the officials in the governorates had to decide about how they would implement those orders and whether that meant that they were going to arrest and torture peaceful demonstrators or not. And Halabi was at the center of taking those decisions in Raqqa. So we see in some locations in the Raqqa governorate that some officials in some of the outlying areas did not want to apply those policies in a particularly harsh way. And so there were fewer arrests or fewer torture in some outlying areas. But in Raqqa itself, in the city itself, they were applied in a very harsh way. And there was a roadblock set up, patrols of state security and criminal security branch officials that would go around the town and everyone knew to fear them. Bill Wiley, another one of the directors at CETA, doesn't mince his words when it comes to what he thinks regarding Halabi's criminal responsibility. Well, the key characteristic is he's a murderer. Appreciate he hasn't been charged and convicted yet, but I can assure your listeners that the evidence is overwhelming in this case. A great many people were victimized and indeed killed in his facility. And the facility wasn't that large, relatively small branch. We know that the interrogation rooms were within earshot of his office. So when people are being filled in and abused in, in myriad ways, we have witnesses that can testify that the screams crying would bounce down the corridor and reach his office. The additional sort of information that we have indicates that, you know, all the types of torture that we've seen in Syrian detention were used in Raqqa and in branch 335 or in Halabi's branch as well. So beating the feet, the soles of the feet, the flying carpet where you're strapped to a hinged board and the board is folded to put pressure on your spine, hung from your wrists from the ceiling so that you're barely touching the ground and then beaten, forced nudity, you know, quite a range of torture. As 2011 wore on, the regime had its hands and prisons full of dissenting protesters. And so it employed a myriad of tactics in an attempt to stop them. Charles Lister is a senior fellow at the Middle East Institute in Washington, D.C. He directs their Syria and countering terrorism and extremism programs. There's also some history here in terms of the regime's willingness to infiltrate and manipulate and weaponize jihadists was that in the very early months of the peaceful uprising, whilst the regime was detaining and disappearing hundreds if not thousands of peaceful protesters, it also decided to announce a series of prisoner amnesties, almost all of which saw Islamist and jihadist prisoners released. So there was this kind of dichotomy that the regime was creating, whereby it was wrapping up and disappearing all of the more secular, peaceful, nationalist protest leaders and protesters and sweeping them into prison cells and then releasing all of the more dangerous Islamist and jihadist individuals who had been in prison for violent offenses. Why, why would the regime release Islamic extremists? To let the revolution become more 
using the, the weapons against the government and stuff like this. That's the first, and which the, the regime know this this game uh, very well. And the second, to let the Western country see the revolution, Islamic people, and they will violent, violence, and yeah, a lot of uh, tourists stuff like this. So would you say that at that time they wanted to kill the, the peaceful spirit? Exactly. And they wanted to show the world that they had a legitimate reason exactly. to fight the exactly. revolution. Exactly. The regime knew what it was doing. You know, this is a regime that has survived for over 50 years. It has survived for over 50 years because it has designed a system of near total control. And it has also understood exactly how it can manipulate its population into submission. And as the time went on, 2011, 2012, could you see the development of the conflict getting yeah. worse? Yeah, the first time the big demonstration had been in March uh, 2012. One year after the start. Yeah. This is the main point of Raqqa turn this revolution side. When they shot direct guy called Ali al-Babinsi. Uh, there was a lot of shooting before, but they don't kill. They arrest, send you to, send you to Damascus, send you to jail, beating, tortured. But this is the first time they shot. And they shot him like 10 meters away from me. I saw him. And the next day, when we took him to the grave, We carry him from Raqqa city center to the graves outside. Uh, this is the first time I see it's like thousands of thousands of the people. I think more than 100,000, more than. Wow. Yeah. When we return back, so the people get angry, really angry, and they start to go to the half of the statues. Yeah. We went there to try to destroyed this station and we saw a lot of soldiers military and intelligence from all the branches from military service and from state security branch and they start shooting us and they kill my friend Mustafa Zanna they killed him they killed on on this week about 41 person so that was the big turning point. Yes. And for you personally, how did things go on from there? There was a meeting for the coordination. We were at a place in Raqqa city and they attacked the place and they arrested us. All of them is like a joint group from all the branches. They came with the military. I put all the you know username and password and stuff for the Facebook pages and the emails, the streaming account. I put everything in in USB small. So when they attack the apartment, I really scared. You know they tried to shoot the apartment was the third floor. I tried to run away uh, to the balcony. At that time, I I think to jump and you know to end my life because I really scared. But the soldier, they start to shoot the balcony from the street. And I just lied on the, on the balcony. Then I take the USB and I threw it. And they came and arrested me. 
We heard about Abdallah's detainment and torture in multiple intelligence branches in episode one. He was detained in Raqqa before being moved to a nearby city called Deir Ezur and was then moved onto the capital, Damascus. Being transferred to Damascus was what detainees feared most. It was a fate that often meant you would never return. Whilst he was enduring horrific treatment in the underground cells of these branches, the conflict was getting hotter on the ground above. The skirmishes between the regime and the protesters were developing, getting increasingly more violent. Kinan Khadej. The transition started happening somewhere by the end of 2011. Bashar's Assad decision to involve the army in this conflict was a catastrophe. Because, like, first, everybody has to put the army in here. From every family, when you're 18, when you finish studying, you have to go. It's a mandatory. And some of those soldiers were forced to fire their weapons uh, at their own neighborhoods. And not surprisingly, they started not following orders. And for the regime being what it is, there were orders to execute anybody who refused to shoot at the protesters. And so soldiers logically started leaving their posts and going back to the place where they came from or started building small groups to defend those protesters. And of course it was unorganized, but it happened all over Syria. That was like the beginning of the Free Syrian Army. The Free Syrian Army may not have had the same military might as the regime, but it began to succeed in liberating areas of Syria from regime control, including in Aleppo. Diana Hayata was in Aleppo, still separated from her children, in July 2012 when the city became a battleground. Rebel fighters launched an offensive to oust government forces and gain control over northern Syria. One incident I, I will never forget, which was when the first time the MEG, the military airplane MEG, flew in the sky of Aleppo and started shelling uh, the highest area, which was the radio station center there. And why I will never forget this day is not only because like it's so scary, the sound and the situation and the, even the, the smell of the air, but also that my children's house was literally in front of the radio station building. So they were in the basement hiding at least six hours and I couldn't see them I couldn't talk to them because I wasn't allowed to so when the father took them away from me the minute he got them away he said I'm not allowed to see them I'm not allowed to talk to them unless he approves it so uh, me watching from my balcony me watching the MiG flying shelling and flying back away I really don't wish any mother to live such a situation. It was really scary. And then 7.15, exactly 7.15 a.m. sharp, they got out from this area. Despite the military power of the regime, the Free Syrian Army did continue to make gains. East Aleppo was liberated from regime control, and other parts of Syria also fell to the opposition. As 2013 came around, much of Syria was under opposition control, and there was the real feeling that the opposition could win. Charles Lister. The scale to which at first regional states intervened, providing finance and weaponry and 
soon thereafter some training to armed opposition groups, you know, did give way in late 2012 and early 2013, a period in which the armed opposition was just by a significant margin. They held all the cards. There were military bases all across the country falling to opposition control in a fairly rapid fashion in that period. And that period also then gave way to the United States and Europe's sort of joining in the bandwagon of providing support to the mainstream opposition. By the end of 2012, the Free Syrian Army had captured key parts of the road that led from Damascus to Raqqa. It joined forces with Aral al-Sham, an Islamist opposition group whose formation can be directly traced back to the regime's release of Islamist extremists from prison in 2011. The rebels had also joined with Al-Nusra Front, another Islamist group who had close ties to Al-Qaeda. This gang of militarized opposition groups were heading to Raqqa. Muhammad had been released from prison and was in Raqqa when the rebels approached. On March 2nd, we were asleep, when suddenly, around 4 or 5 in the morning, we heard gunfire. It wasn't heavy shelling, just sporadic gunfire. They were on the outskirts at first, then news started spreading. The Free Syrian Army was in the heart of the city. They had surrounded the state security and military security forces. It takes like two or three days, two days. Quick. It's like really quick. Because as the regime, they, they don't send any support to them. It seemed that no one had felt that this city, considered loyal to the regime, would fall so quickly. Raqqa became the first provincial capital to fall to the rebels. It was a major gain for them after two years of fighting the Assad regime for control over Syria. What happened to the high-ranking regime officials who were in Raqqa when the Free Syrian Army came? There was the, the mayor and the head of Ba'ath Party in Raqqa. And they got arrested by Islamic group in Jabhat al-Nusra. I don't know what happened to them till now. Maqid Samir, he was the head of the military intelligence branch. He fled to 17 Brigade, north of Raqqa. So most of the, the high-ranking generals and officers, they went to 17th Brigade. The 17th Brigade is the part of the Syrian Arab Army, so the regime's army, that was responsible for northeastern Syria, which is the part of Syria where Raqqa is located. In the first few days of March 2013, the opposition liberated Raqqa, so they defeated the government forces and took control of the governorate and particularly of the city. And in the days before that, several helicopters of high-level officials from Raqqa retreated to Damascus. So key officials from Raqqa, from the security and intelligence directorates. But Halabi did not go, so he didn't return to Damascus. Khaled al-Halabi had neither returned back to Damascus or to the safety of nearby regime-controlled areas, nor had he been captured by the rebels. Khaled al-Halabi had disappeared. Where had he gone? The Syria Trials Season 2 is hosted by me, Fritz Streif. 
You can find us on socials at 75podcasts or at our website, 75podcasts.org, where you can listen to season one of our series as well as our sister series in Arabic. Please do leave a comment or review for us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you usually listen. It'll help us reach more listeners and interested parties. Thank you very much for listening.